This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. This week, who's protesting against the new COVID rules in Europe? Plus, is China having its Me Too moment? And finally, what does it take to be a Hamley's elf? First up, in The Spectator this week, we have three articles covering the riots and protests that are taking place all over Europe right now about the new COVID policies being brought in. Two of them report the scene on the ground in different countries. Lionel Barber and Nick Farrell write respectively about the situations in Holland and Italy, and they both join me now. Lionel and Nick, this week you both write from various European countries where protests have been taking place against new lockdown measures and mandatory vaccinations. Lionel, you've been in Amsterdam and you write this week's diary and you say that these are dangerous times in the Netherlands. What exactly have you observed happening there? Well, there are riots on the streets and late last week the police exceptionally opened live fire in the streets of Amsterdam. And there are violent uh, protests, mobs, hooligans, football hooligans, far right. And they're all protesting against these further lockdown measures. We may even get to a complete lockdown by the end of the week, which the government, the mushy Dutch coalition government, is planning to introduce in response to a surge in COVID cases which threatens to overwhelm the hospitals. And what exactly are the new regulations being brought in? Essentially, people will have to show that they have a COVID pass in order to enter public spaces. And that that really means being vaccinated. Now, previously, you could also show that you've got a negative test and gain access, but that looks as though it's not going to happen. So people feel that they're just on the edge of obligatory vaccinations, mandatory vaccinations, and that stirs opposition in a variety of constituencies. I mean, it's the libertarians, it's also the far right. And you know, there's history here. We haven't talked about Germany yet, but the situation is very serious. But if they go to mandatory vaccinations, I predict further violence. Nick, this is a subject that you talk about in this week's issue where you ask, why is it Europe's fascists who seem so opposed to compulsory vaccination? You write about Germany. Tell us about the situation in Germany, Nick. Well, I'm, I'm good. we're speaking from Italy, but nevertheless, I mean, in Germany, what is happening is that they are experiencing soaring rates in infections. I'm not quite clear whether that is actually leading to uh, soaring rates in um, illness and hospitalisation as well. But nevertheless, the situation I think it is. The situation is very serious. And they are contemplating, as Lionel was saying, they're contemplating the, the stricter crack uh, control of the unvaccinated and what they can and cannot do outside their own homes, such as, I mean, in Italy, where I am, which has the most draconian bans on the vaccinated, uh, the vaccinated can't even go to work without what they call a green pass, a green pass, a vaccine pass, which uh, proves they're fully vaccinated. That's the situation in terms of what governments are doing, in terms of what uh, people are protesters, I find extraordinary, ironic, bizarre, that the people who are complaining loudest about this 
suspension of the freedom of the individual are the far right, which uh, in many of these far right parties are, of course, uh, have their roots in fascism. So um, not that they are, strictly speaking, fascist parties, but they are definitely far right. And it's them who are, if you like, defending freedom, which is an extraordinary state of affairs. Lionel, what should we make of the fact that it is now often the far right standing against compulsory vaccination, which some would argue is is in itself quite a fascistic policy? I slightly differ about uh, these restrictions on individual liberties. I'm afraid I'm with Mario Draghi. And by the way, it's very interesting that Southern European countries that are often seen as incompetent, chaotic, corrupt, are the ones that have a better record right now in fighting this virus. Uh, Look at Spain, look at Portugal, look at Italy, Greece even. So what do I make of the far right? I think they're using this as an excuse, a cover for another agenda. I don't think that they're strict libertarians. I think there are people on those demonstrations who, and I write this in the notebook, Lara, who are comparing themselves to the Jews, comparing themselves to the Dutch resistance against Nazi occupation, This is an obscene rewriting of history. And I think governments have a duty, a wider duty, to safeguard public health. So there are going to be some restrictions on individual liberty. I would just add one thing. We need to perhaps revise some of our views about the competence of the Johnson government. He may be having a trouble now, but actually that decision to reopen and ease lockdown in the summer is looking smarter by the day because you've got boosters and wider immunity because of that decision and the rest of Europe is behind and that's part of the problem. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you say it's a front. I mean, I, I, they claim it's not a front for a hidden agenda. I don't know what the hidden agenda is. They're not against democracy, are they? For goodness sake, these days, the far right. They're pro-democratic. So what is it in their agenda that is fascist these days, it's very difficult to say. But anyway, I just wanted to say that, yes, you're right. I mean, Boris, having not had lockdown, having eased restrictions on masks and all the rest of it, possibly did the right thing. And in England, there is a pretty high vaccination rate, and uh, there have been extremely high infection rates, but they're now going down, whereas in Europe, they're going up, despite, in Italy, for example, and not only in Italy, Spain and Portugal and various other countries, there have been very strict um, vaccine passes, controls on the unvaccinated. The, the rates are now shooting up despite all those draconian controls on the unvaccinated. So who is right here? What is the right way forward? Lionel, do you foresee a situation where if compulsory vaccination is brought in in Austria mm-hmm. or Germany, I mean, that could lead to a resurgence of the far right in Europe? It is going to be compulsory in Austria from February. That's happened. I think it's going to be a real test for the new German coalition. We now know that Olaf Scholz will be the new chancellor of the traffic light coalition. You've got Greens, you've got libertarian free Democrats in that coalition, along with the SPD. And it's a big decision. I think that they will think hard by making vaccination mandatory throughout. I think that could cause a serious problem in terms of resistance because of the country's history, but also because of anti-science movements. We haven't talked much about that. East Germany is still a real problem. So I'm not sure they'll go that far. 
They need to get through the winter. I would predict lockdown rather than that, despite the economic damage. Well, Nick, this is a point that you touch upon when you say there are two key elements of the traditional fascist mindset that help to explain why they are leading the charge against mandatory vaccination. Can you explain to listeners what those two elements are? I mean, first of all, of course, it's not just fascists and far-right people are objecting. It's libertarians who are objecting to all these um, draconian measures. Okay, so on fascists, uh, why do they object to this type of stuff? One reason is that they hate the international. Fascism was, in fact, national socialism. If we want a simple definition, as opposed to international socialism, it is an alternative left-wing revolutionary movement called the far-right <laughs> these days. So it was founded by a revolutionary socialist, Mussolini, in Italy, 100 years ago, and uh, it hates the international, basically. So therefore, it, sees, it, it hates big pharma, it hates big banks, it hates big business, global, multinational, anything it hates. That's one reason. The second reason is that it has a very strong streak of vaccination, <clears throat> vaccination ideology, uh, which takes in things like nudism, alternative health care, and folklore. For example, one of its cult books is talking from The Lord of the Rings from The Hobbit. Uh, young fascists used to, for example, in the 70s and 80s, go on summer Hobbit camp, <laughs> where they would pretend to be hobbits fighting the great multinational evil Thoron. So there we go. That's two reasons. And so therefore, of course, they are prone also to believe uh, the incredible, such as conspiracy theories about to impose world dictatorships and so on. And Lionel, one of the points that Mick makes is that it would actually be a mistake, though, to think that all these protesters across Europe are all kind of conspiracy theorists and anti-vax, and that actually quite a few of them are probably pro-vaccination, but anti a lot of the stricter, more draconian measures being brought in. Do you think those people's views need to be taken in, into consideration? Oh, definitely. And I agree with Nick. And I said this at the beginning, that there are multiple constituencies here and we've seen this in our country, former Supreme Court judge and regular contributor to The Spectator. There are people who have very strong views and they are sound libertarian views. I mean, I don't happen to think that fascists or proto-fascists or young fascists are teddy bears. I think they're actually rather dangerous. But I do think that we need to take into account individual liberties. I would worry about a national identity pass if government sought to use the extraordinary. I mean, let's face it, Lara, we've been at times in the UK, and you've seen it now in Europe, in a state of emergency. But that was necessary to combat an extraordinary public health crisis. And if we have to keep the soccer stadiums closed for another two or three weeks, I don't think this is the kind of infringement of individual liberty, which we were seeing in Mussolini's Italy or Hitler's Germany. And by the way, as anybody who's read Three Faces of Fascism by Ernst Nolte, they know that the, there are differences, in fact, between national socialism and Italian fascism. Of course there are differences, but nevertheless, fascism was founded as national socialism anyway. <laughs> Nick, just finally to finish on, I want to make, at the end of your piece, you come to this point that, that Draghi's decrees are actually incredibly popular in Italy. And therefore, are they not very democratic, even if it seems like he's being kind of quite extreme? If he's got the will of the people behind him, are they not hugely democratic? Yeah. Well, what we're talking about is, of course, the dictatorship by the majority and the mouthpiece is Draghi. But I mean, um, yeah, I mean, the fact is that in poll after poll, you know, the, the fascists and the libertarians and the far right who 
oppose all these extraordinary uh, violations of uh, civil liberties in the name of the communal good, uh, they are a minority. You know, very in Italy, uh, particularly, something like 25%, whereas about three-quarters of Italians are actually in favour of even the ban on the unvaccinated from going to work, which is an extraordinary... I mean, if you think about it, in England, without obligation, 70-whatever-it-is percent of the population are now vaccinated, uh, which is more or less the same as in Italy. Do we really need all these violations of civil liberty to get people to get the vaccine? I don't know. But anyway, uh, I wouldn't have thought so if you look at England and uh, Britain. But the majority of the towns are pro drafty They love him. He'll probably end up as president, which is going to happen. The elections are happening in January. There's no danger of, of a fascist comeback in Italy. You know, I mean, in terms of uh, electoral support, for example, so-called straight fascist party gets less than 1% of the vote. The post-fascist Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy party, is Italy's most successful popular party. According to the polls, it's the only major party that refused to join Draghi's uh, government of national unity, and it's the only party that explicitly, major party explicitly, objects to the bans on the unvaccinated but it's losing support on that issue. Because with Italians, even those that support Fratelli d'Italia, they are pro-banning the vaccinated, pro-turning the, vac the unvaccinated, sorry, turning the unvaccinated into effectively second-class citizens. That's what it amounts to. Thank you, Lionel and Nick. Just a quick interjection here. If you're enjoying this podcast, we have a host of other podcasts available, including Table Talk, which I host with Olivia Potts. It's released every two weeks, and we're always joined by an interesting guest who tells us all about their life through food and drink. All the links are available in the description. Next up, Cindy Yu writes this week about the Chinese tennis player Peng Shuai, who, after making claims of being pressured into a sexual relationship with a CCP official, disappeared for days, and all mentions of her claims were whipped from social media. Cindy also writes about the history of Chinese mistress culture, and she joins me now to discuss. Cindy, you write this week about how a spotlight has been shone on China in recent days due to the troubling series of events surrounding the Chinese tennis player Peng Shuai. Can you give us an overview of the situation? Yeah, of course. So Peng Shuai is a relatively famous tennis star in China. She's around 35 years old. So, you know peak of career at the moment. In November, there was an odd statement that came out from her Weibo account, the kind of the Chinese equivalent of Twitter, where she detailed in a lot of kind of harrowing and emotional detail, actually, had this affair that she had with a former vice premier of China. But it all started with her saying that he had raped her that first time. And so, you know, instantly it was like a Me Too story as well as a story about adultery. And then Within two minutes, the statement was censored. So then it became a story about censorship. And in the last few weeks, you haven't seen much of her. Her social media has been all censored until last week when a series of very bizarre kind of proof of life videos and pictures came up, all kind of staged by state media to kind of say to the West, you know, she's fine, you're just being hysterical. But no one on the Chinese state side has acknowledged her accusations. And her statement is still, you can't read it on Chinese social media. So, you know, 
they're just it's just business as normal really and my piece is just talking about you know how unusual or usual is it for this kind of mistress lifestyle to happen and, and you, you say that there have been me too scandals in china but this is one of the first to sort of shine a light on what's going on in the kind of higher ranks of the ccp yeah correct? exactly i mean there are a lot of i mean as you can expect um from kind of coming out of communism era of authoritarian state, there's a lot of corruption. Um, so in the 90s and in the 2000s, there were a lot of people with mistresses and to the extent that people were boasting about the women that they had stashed away. But the difference between this case and those cases and the stories that we knew before is that this case, she says she wasn't consenting to that. Um, she then carried out a three-year affair with this man. So it's all very complicated. And, you know, does she love him or not? What's going on there? But clearly the first time they were together, she says that she was crying all afternoon. He pressured her into it. And that's how it started. It's not what the usual stories we hear about extramarital affairs are. And you say in your piece that it was considered fashionable for men of a certain stature to have a mistress is that still the case I mean are there still lots of men who will have mistresses in China so I quote my um, businessman friend who sounds very intriguing this businessman yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so I um he's yeah, he's a he's a he's a Chinese business businessman, and he's relatively successful internationally speaking. And I went to dinner with him once, and he was giving me you know his life lessons, as it were. And he was saying that his advice to men is that before men are the age of thirty five, women are tools, so they're they to help you to get on with in life. After the men are th- at the age of thirty five, women are toys. And when I met him, he was in his mid forties, so t- he was in the toy stage, as it were. So by which he meant you know the women around him, he could have those extramarital affairs and that would be fine and you know he just thought it was completely normal like it's, it's such an usual thing in China to speak of someone's concubine what, what I call concubine in pieces san, these Chinese phrases for the extra woman and it's very very usual for that but in politics that's been less usual especially since Xi Jinping has come out on stage because he wants this reputation of the party as being like party of the people very down to earth you know having mistresses one guy had 146 mistresses you know that's oh, not busy man busy man yeah <laughs> that's definitely not part of the you know ideal of a you know hard-working political party so since Xi Jinping has come to power he's either eradicated those politicians behavior or we just don't hear about it much now and the Ponchai story shows that maybe we just don't hear much about it and it is still happening and you, you talk a little bit about who becomes mistress and, and the sort of women that become mistresses and you say that there are these harrowing stories that appear online of kind of people finding out about the mistresses can you tell us a bit about that yeah it's violence porn really and it's compelling in a way that you know people want to in the same way that people want to watch violent things or violent things happening to pretty women that's it taps into that kind of thing where you know you'll have a wife who's found out about her husband's affair and she she's not going to take it standing down so she then get enlists her family members to beat up and film and publicly humiliate the mistress. A lot of the time the men kind of get away with it, as is usual across the world, I guess. Um, but yeah, you, you've, there's awful, really graphic videos of women being beaten up as a part of this. And, you know, if you Google on, on Chinese internet, you can say, like, you know, mistress having a comeuppance or mistress revenge, that kind of thing. And it's quite popular because in a popular mindset, even though you know it's happening and for men it's a status symbol, it's still a shameful thing for the women to be participating in unless you can become promoted i.e become the real wife and usurp that kind of main role which some mistresses do and just finally i mean what what, so we we don't quite know where peng is but do you think we we, we will sort of find out more about what's happened to her 
I don't think we'll find out that much more. I think she's just going to gradually come back into public life because I think the Chinese side has realized that actually you can't just hide away someone without this kind of, and especially her because of the international backlash. But I don't think she's going to press those allegations anymore because one of the videos that she that the state media released last week was her with her friends and her coach in a restaurant in a clearly scripted exchange but the fact that her friends and her coach are there means that her social network has been co-opted by the state to put pressure on her so they're going to be telling her something like you know you're only 35 you still got your career ahead of you you don't want to press this do you you're never going to move out of China anyway what's the point and I reckon she's going to then drop the allegations and that's how she gets back to normal life so we will never know what happened to her in that few weeks but we'll never also hear anything about this man that she accused um, of raping her. Thank you, Cindy. Subscribe to The Spectator in our flash sale and you'll get 12 weeks of the magazine in print and online for just £12. Not only that, but we'll also send you a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Scotch Whiskey absolutely free. Hurry though, as this offer ends on Monday go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale. And finally, Christmas is coming. And if there are children in your life begging for this season's hottest toy, you might find yourself at Hamley's, the world's oldest toy store. And as you enter, you may well be greeted by a festive elf. But what's it like being one of these red and green clad friends of Father Christmas? Our podcast producer, Sam Holmes, writes in The Spectator this week about his experience as an elf when he was 19. He joins me now along with Mark Campbell, the current Lego man at Hamleys, and Sam's old boss from his elf days. Sam, you write in this week's issue about your time as a Hamleys elf, which you did prior to becoming The Spectator's podcast producer. How did you go about getting this job? Uh, so I got this job just as I graduated school and I'd planned to take a gap year but hadn't booked anything to do in the gap year. So I thought it was probably time to get a job. But I, my A-levels were not in what you'd call the most academic of subjects. So I looked for something that I could do some performing in. And I saw that uh, basically from October, Hamleys were hiring event staff, which included being a werewolf and scaring people. That was my first role. And then as Christmas came about, I slowly transitioned into uh, being an elf. It was very Christmassy. And you liken the role to military service. How exactly was it like military service? So you get given a uniform, uh, which you have to very, keep very clean and presented, and it's your responsibility to make sure it's always impeccably dressed. You've got a very regulated time schedule. You have to sort of be out the front at exactly the time the store opens, which does sometimes vary from day to day. You've got to know when the snow's going to fall from the uh, fake snow machine on the roof and be looking incredibly excited about it. And you've got to you know, make sure that no one's vomited in the grotto again at particular times when you net a new group of kids in. And did that happen frequently? Uh, luckily, not too much. Most of the vomiting, would, if it did happen, would take place at sort of the Hamleys parties where people would go and raid the sweet section and sort of eat as much as they possibly could. But Grotto stayed fairly clean. Mark, you're mentioned in Sam's piece, and I think I'm right in saying you still work at Hamleys. What's your role at Hamleys? I'm now the uh, Lego manager at Hamleys. That I sounds like a very the, good uh, job. When I, when I met him... <laughs> I was the entertainment manager, and we met, I met him at Tiger Tiger. He actually came into the, uh, to the interview, was ridiculously polite and nice, walked off, had his interview with somebody else, but I was just the, one of the first points of contact. He didn't get the job, and as he was walking out, he said, uh, nice to meet you, I didn't get the job, but uh, thank you anyone, was so polite. And I said, come here, come here, what did you say? He said, I didn't get the job. I said, how did they not sign you up? What? And he said, yeah, I don't know, and I went, Give me your name, give me your number, I'll, I'll talk to you later. And then I employed him, because I loved him. 
because he's polite and lovely and you know that so um yeah we do know that and 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 what do you look for in a good elf what makes a good elf i wasn't looking for the elves we literally had performers we had a budget uh, I was looking for someone with really good eye contact, someone very sure of themselves, someone who could think on his own two feet. Someone military service. My father was kind of well, he was a lieutenant colonel in the air force. I make sure things happen on time. Got quite a um, right. We're doing this then type voice that I have to. It's not my usual way. Um, sound literally just ticked the boxes. I could see in his eyes and everything about him and his personality. He was just wonderful. Takes a sip to see if the wine is good or not. Liked him immediately. Thought. Yeah, we'll talk to him. And then, yeah, did eventually, I didn't employ him as an elf, but he did kind of go into that role. And he was absolutely brilliant. He's understating it. He was marvellous. <laughs> Sam, you talk about these sleepovers and say that they were the most intense part of the job. Take us through what happens at a Hamley sleepover. So a Hamley sleepover happens. Basically, the store closes. Everyone is pushed out. Uh, everything is sort of made to look nice. And then what can only be described as a group of incredibly rich children will arrive. I don't know the exact pricing anymore. It's probably upscaled a lot since I was there. Four and a half grand did your day. Per (laughs) child. No, ten kids, four and a half grand uh, plus extras. Yes. And what do you get for that? It basically meant that as long as they weren't ripping open multiple PlayStations, they could basically open up and play with whatever they wanted. The games that they decided, the sort of theme of it all... They got to choose and we just got to try and make it happen. Basically, we were trying to make them as exhausted as possible, as quickly as possible, so they could go to sleep. (laughs) And sometimes you could get them down by two, sometimes it would be four. But the thing about working these sleepovers is you were not allowed to sleep at any point because you were the responsible adult who was sometimes dressed like an elf or sometimes, I think like one time I was Chewbacca as well. That was good fun. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I mean, if you can afford it, it is probably one of those experiences that any one of those kids at those parties will remember forever the day I stayed over in the oldest and probably most famous toy store in the world and had a four-hour nerf fight and ate my weight in Haribo. (laughs) I mean, it sounds pretty exhausting. Mark, is working in Hamleys itself just quite an exhausting job with all the children and everyone sort of very excited to be there? Is it exhausting? Yes. Of course. Yeah, you know, that's what coffee was invented for, I'm sure. They knew we were going (laughs) to open a toy shop one day. Yeah, but also you've got to surround yourself with the right people. I had total faith in Sam. I was with him for a while. Before we let him do sleepovers, you have to get through loads of hoops and whatever, and we have to look into their backgrounds and all the normal things so you get all your checks. I passed all the checks. I passed all the checks. Did all the checks. Yeah, it was was all right. I mean, it was hard. The hardest part is literally you've got 10 kids you've never met before. You've met the parent, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they just ring up. Maybe they send in their bodyguard, as happened on the... Hunger Games thing. This guy yeah. checked the place out beyond belief to make sure you know no nowhere was out. They just locked it down. That was quite interesting. But yeah, you have to you meet them and they'll give you a kind of rough idea of what they want to do. They literally for that night, the mother had rented uh, an entire thing in the Odeon in Leicester Square, all for their kids for ten kids, and they went there first. And then they came to us directly afterwards. And between eight when we closed and the the last people left. From eight o'clock onwards, we had like 40 minutes till nine o'clock till they were there to put out red carpets, to put out standees of Justin Bieber and loads of other characters that they had brought in. Champagne things so the the mothers and whatever come in, go, oh, hello, and have champagne, have a wonderful time, and then leave the kids with us with the bodyguard around and stuff. It was madness. But yeah, you don't really know much about them, so you have to arrange 12 hours to make these kids' lives absolutely insanely brilliant. And in the following morning, when they come in where the parents are there, they just walk in and say, did you have a good time? And you've got to make sure that the, uh, the kid goes, yes. And if we found out, if you keep the kid up, that kid's a zombie. 
by nine o'clock in the morning when they're being picked up. And so we went, yeah, it's a sleepover. Let's do that. Sam literally would run around the shop with me. We'd be do, we'd split them into two. We'd do battles of Nerf guns. We'd run them up and down. And yeah, there was a point they would sleep. And then we'd feed them breakfast. And then when the parents picked them up, yeah, they were like, do you have a good time? And they went, yes, they did. Like, <laughs> Sounds great. Sam says in his piece that you are friends with Oscar winners, multi-platinum artists and royalty. Presumably you've got lots of good stories from your time at Hamleys. Yeah. Well, I've been there, it's nearly 30 years. So... Yeah, and being the entertainment manager of a toy shop, especially at Christmas, celebs do come out and they do want things and they do need things. And you get phone calls for people you haven't seen for a while. And it's, Mark, darling. And you go, oh, hi, whoever, famous person. <laughs> and then, hi. And then you get around the conversation. Then you say, what can I do for you? Because people just need stuff. So I know all the good people. I know some bad ones too, but I know, I know all the good people. So. And Sam, why do you think it is that Hamleys occupies this kind of fabled position in in our country well i remember on my first few days uh, i think mark took us round he's you know the like the way fraser some will take people around the spectator <laughs> and point out all the history of everything mark would take us around hamleys we're political hamleys here aren't we <laughs> we're like a political hamleys the champagne goes to us rather than <laughs> to the parents the store itself you see on from the uh, founded sign hanging outside is technically older than the formation of Australia in the United States. So you've already got that history on there. You know, the Queen's been down to buy these teddy bears and it's this institution that has, you know, six to seven floors of amazing toys. It's got everything that you could possibly want. And I think, especially around Christmas time, is they do pull out all the stops. My mum was literally walking past Hamley's on down Regent Street this week and she said, Sam, the uniforms haven't changed. And they haven't changed because they work. And Mark would come out and sort of, you know, in his Dickensian outfit and sort of scream about how excited it was that Christmas was coming. And you certainly get that feeling. And I think you go into a lot of stores and they're playing the same Christmas music very repetitively. And it's, you know, it doesn't really work at an H&M because no one feels festive in an H&M. But at Hamley's, especially when you've got kids and they believe it, they see an elf and they think that is an elf and they know Father Christmas is coming I think that is Father Christmas even if you don't believe it you can get swept up in the children believing in it and enjoying it so much and Mark do you still really love Christmas yes (laughs) yeah simple as that this must be a busy time for you right now and presumably last year you weren't really able to do the full kind of Hamleys experience so are you you really closed for the first time ever in the history of Hamleys we closed the doors and we were closed for COVID and it was quite heartbreaking really it was very strange for me I'm used to just going there so yeah it was uh, it was a weird one but um we're open so it doesn't matter we're open in April we're we're all good we're back to normal and it has the weekends it feels like olden days if Sam turned up at the weekends he'd go wow it's just the same in the week all of Regent Street is quite quiet and a load of people still working from home, so all the offices around, because Regent Street also has all the office workers, so we're full of people literally just running in because it's the niece, nephew, kid, or whatever, and they need to buy the toys quickly and get out. But those guys aren't around because so many of them are working from home. But at the weekends, everyone comes down, and we are full. We had an amazing weekend at this weekend. I mean, absolutely phenomenal. So, yeah, I mean, weekends are just back to normal, so... That's very good to hear. And just finally, Mark, you must have a fairly encyclopedic knowledge of the toys in Hamleys. Have you, have you got a favourite? I built a Millennium Falcon. It's a UCS Millennium Falcon in Lego. Okay, This thing is £650 worth. It took me 22 hours and seven minutes to make at my house. In fact, where, just where I'm sitting over there in my conservatory. I built it there. It stayed in my house. Built that best toy I've ever made. My favourite toy of all time. 
and it's going to retire soon. That means I get to take it home, which is uh, even better when you walk the Lego Man. So, favourite toy of all time, Millennium Falcon. Other favourite toy, the Rubik's Cube. When they did the Rubik's Cube, I was, I was quite... I came to Hamley's and we met guys who could do the Rubik's Cube. So Rubik's Cube has been one of my top favourite things of all time. But the Millennium Falcon, hands down, best. So you know what to get your kids this Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> you know the man from Hamley's. Sam will give you my number. It's all good. I know. I'm looking forward to coming in. I've got an 18-month-year-old. I'm sure she'll be excited to come and down. Well, first of all for her. So that's where young kids go. Thank you, Sam and Mark. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up the latest issue of the magazine to read everything we've talked about? And if you've become a subscriber today, you can get 12 weeks of the magazine for £12 delivered to your door along with a £20 Amazon gift card. I'm Lara Prendergast. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week.